Yes, well done indeed. Uh, well, good morning, friends. Lovely to be back here so soon. Um, I did say to Graham after the, uh, what do we call that night? Open mic, Open mic night. I said, uh, I said, let me know if you need a break any time. It'd be lovely to come back down. I didn't know it'd be quite this soon, but that, that, that's, uh, that's wonderful, wonderful to do. Uh, we're going to be looking not at, Rome, at, at Hebrews 11, but Romans chapter 3, which uh, you'll find on page 1114, okay, 1114 uh, of the Pew Bibles. And uh, if you grab the bulletin on the way in, uh, you'll find a little uh, outline of the sermon um, that uh, may be a help to you. Uh, how about I pray for us and um, just commit us to God and his word. Father, thank you for the privilege of being here and having your word open before us. May you teach us through it, make us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ, and help us to rejoice in the great gift of grace that has come to us through him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Faith alone was the topic Graham asked me to address this morning, or to give it its perhaps longer title, Justification by Faith Alone. Uh, a theme that's very dear to my heart, and one that's, well, particularly apt, given that we're just a Sunday shy of uh, what's called Reformation Sunday. Uh, Reformation Sunday always happens at the end of October, just before the 31st of October, or sometimes on the 31st of October. And you might ask, why the 31st of October? What's the significance of that? Date Well, that's the date on which, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in Germany. And he did that because he wanted to generate discussion and, in fact, to make a bit of a protest against the sale of what were called papal indulgences. In fact, they're still called papal indulgences. They're still uh, available, in fact. But the way they worked back then, a little different to the way they work now, back then you had to buy them from the church. And uh, the deal was if you gave a certain amount of money, then that would carve off a certain amount of years in purgatory. So, you know, if your grandmother, is, as far as you were aware, suffering away in purgatory, you paid enough money, boom, she was out. As the uh, saying went back in the day, as, the, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings... The soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> that was the slogan. Luther wasn't impressed, and uh, he not only, again, wanted to challenge this, what he thought of, of as an abusive practice, but as he did so, it started a movement. And that movement's what we call the Protestant Reformation. Of course, as events unfolded, it became clear that the practice of selling indulgences was really just the tip of an iceberg. There were much bigger problems underneath. In fact, the biggest of all problems was that the medieval church had lost the gospel. They had obscured the truth that lies at the very heart of the Christian message, that justification is by faith alone. So that's why I'm excited to open this theme up with you this morning. And the reason we're going to Romans 3, I mean, Hebrews 11 would have been terrific too, and any number of other passages, but Martin Luther said of this passage in Romans 3 that it is the chief point and central place of the whole Bible. And the reason he made that claim for it is because of the clarity with which it teaches us this truth of justification by faith alone, showing us what it is, what it isn't, and why it is such good news. 
for needy sinners of every stripe. So, Romans 3, picking it up at verse 19, the passage begins, as you'll see, by reminding us of the, the problem that every human being shares and the verdict that hangs over us as a consequence of that problem. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now let's throw a few questions at these verses to start with. First of all, what is it that the law says? That's the opening of verse 19. We know whatever the law says. Well, what does the law say? Well, basically the law says two things. It, it makes a promise and it makes a threat. The promise is back in Leviticus 18 verse 5. If a person obeys these commandments, he shall live by them. Right? Keep the law. And you'll be blessed. In fact, you'll receive eternal life. That's the promise. That's what the law says. Do this and you will live. The threat, well, that's in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not keep the words of this law by doing them. Okay, so the promise, threat. Do this and you'll live. Don't do this and you'll pay the penalty. You'll be cursed. So what does the law do? What does it deliver? Does it provide the life that it promises? Well, it would if we could keep it. It's not an empty promise. If we could actually do the law, keep the law, obey the law, it would give us the life that it promises. But the problem is we can't. We don't. And so the law condemns us. It actually condemns us all. That's why Paul says that the law, as it were, shuts us up. It leaves us with nothing to say. Its effect on us is entirely negative. So that every mouth may be silenced, says Paul, and the whole world held accountable to God. I have a friend who uh, from time to time says to me that it's good to be disillusioned every once in a while. And I probed him once day and said, well, you know, tell me what you mean when you say that. And he said, well... It's always better to live in reality than, live under, than to live under an illusion. I said, okay, fair enough. And the way to get out from being under an illusion is to be, you guessed it, disillusioned. <laughs> That's what brings us back to reality. And so his point's a good one. And here's a passage that does that for us. Isn't it? These are verses that really do disillusion us. And so they give us a bit of a test, a test, I suppose, that helps us to determine, are we living in reality or are we self-deceived? You see, the self-deceived person, the person who thinks that all is well when all is not well, well, they're always talking, always complaining, always criticizing, always blaming, always self-justifying. They're under an illusion that everyone else is the problem except them. Person living in reality, says Paul, has their hand over their mouth. Nothing to say. They know that when all is said and done, we are without excuse. We do not keep the law. 
and so we are under its curse. Now you might wonder why the law has to have this effect. Why can't it do something to help us? Why can't it lift us out of our problem? And the simple answer is it's, it's not its job. It's not what it's there for. It was never designed to cure sin, only designed to expose sin. It's like an x-ray machine, right? If you break your leg, the x-ray machine will show the break, but it will do absolutely nothing to fix it. Doesn't cure you one iota. Just reveals the problem, provides no solution at all. That's why verse 20 says what it does, that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, because we don't. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. It shows us that we fail. And so there's the law. It does its job very well. It diagnoses our problem and delivers the verdict and what is that verdict? Well, the old Book of Common Prayer had a lovely, well, confronting way, but a helpful way of summing it up. We have left undone those things we ought to have done, and we have done those things we ought not to have done, right? And there is no health in us. That's the truth, and that's the truth the law shows us. Right? It makes us conscious of Sin. Now, if that leaves us, therefore, with a sort of sense of desperation, well, it's actually a good thing. It's part of being disillusioned, being brought into reality. And once you're in reality, then, well, there's good news to hear because you're ready to hear what I think are perhaps two of the most liberating words written in the whole Bible. They're the words in the very next verse, verse 21. You see them? But... Now, but now, a righteousness from God, says Paul, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, he says. Now, just cast your mind back over the last 150 years or so, not that we were around for it, of course, but a myriad of incredible changes have happened in our world, have they not? I mean, once, you know, even a century ago, walk, people walking on the moon, come on. Who'd have thought that was even possible? But now, it's happened, hasn't it? In our lifetime, many of us. Once, it was impossible to travel around the world in anything less than Several months now, of course, you can do it in less than 24 hours. Once, if you wanted to get a letter to the other side of the world, well, you had to send it, what we call by snail mail, sea mail, whatever it was. We'd again take weeks, months, now, bang, press the button, email goes, photos attached, whatever it is. Now, all of these changes tell us about some massive shift, right? Once like this, but now. So here with God's word. Right, something has happened that has brought about a change in eras. A change more wonderful, in fact, than anything we could possibly imagine. Because once upon a time, you see, there was no basis for a just God to declare 
guilty human beings justified. I mean, how can a God, just God, declare guilty human beings justified? Well, once there was no basis for him so doing, but now, now there is a way. There is a foundation for sinners to be forgiven. There is grounds for unrighteous people to be declared righteous in the presence of God. So what has happened? What has brought about this change? Well, Paul says this, a righteousness from God has been made known apart from the law. He's talking here about God's saving power to justify guilty sinners. That's how Luther came to understand uh, this expression, the righteousness of God or righteousness from God. This power of God to, as it were, do the impossible has been let loose in the world. And notice it hasn't come through the law. It couldn't come through the law. The law only has the negative word to say. It's come in another way, a new way, a wonderful way, but not in an unforeseen way because what does he say? He says, well, the law and the prophets, in fact, testify to it. They point to it. They bear witness to it. So what's the new way? How does righteousness come to needy sinners? How does justification come to the unjust? Verse 22 tells us it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Simple as that. Through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the way to become righteous in the sight of God is by trusting in the Son of God. Right? That's a line to write down, isn't it? The way to become righteous in the sight of God is by trusting in the Son of God. Simple as that. Believing, not doing. Resting, not working. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that is an incredible relief. <laughs> it is wonderful news. I mean, it, it takes all the pressure off and all the foreboding away. Because what the Word of God is telling me is that I, if I trust in Christ here now, in this moment, I am righteous before God and can be no more righteous than I am right now. I'm justified before God and can be no more just in his sight than I am right now. Not because of anything in me, but through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. And just in case you're thinking, yeah, but surely that can't mean me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe some other people, maybe others I know, but if you really knew my heart, well, Paul says, no. Nobody's excluded here. Everybody's included. It's a universal gift. It's all-encompassing. It's open to everyone. As verse 22 says, it's to all who believe. All. There is no difference. Now, why is that? Why is there no difference? How is it possible for a gift to be available to everyone from least to greatest? Available to Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free. How is it that this good gift has been made so wonderfully and freely available? Well, read on. Verses 23 to 25 actually tell us. 
It's because, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the negative news. And so, verse 24, are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now, there's a number of very big ideas wrapped up in those verses, so let me just uh, take a moment to unpack them. There are three key words you might have noticed, right? Justified or justification. Redemption is the second word, and atonement is the third one. Let's open them up. It's very important we understand what it means to be justified. We've been using the language you know, freely already, but what does it actually mean? Well, it's language that comes out of the law court, isn't it? To be justified is to be declared by the judge not guilty. It's to be acquitted. It's to be declared to be in the right and therefore free. It's an interesting historical fact that back in 17th century Scotland, uh, when somebody was hanged for a crime, they would write in the statute book, Hamish Macduff, or whatever Scottish name you want to put in there, was justified today. Hooray! Good for Hamish. Unfortunately, he'd just be hanged, so it didn't do him any good. But could he come back to life? <laughs> he would be a free man because the law would have nothing more to say to him. He's been justified. Now, of course, in our case, someone has died in our place. But somebody has satisfied the law on our behalf. Right? Christ died for us so that we might be justified freely by his grace. In other words, friends, this is a gift from God. A gift we do not deserve. A gift that's totally unmerited. And it comes to us, says Paul, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, what's this all about? Here's our second word, isn't it? Redemption. Well, here we move out of the law court into the slave market. Right? Redemption's got to do with buying someone or something back. And what we're being told here is that Jesus has bought us back out of slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to death. He has done that by paying the price, the redemption price, the ransom, in other words. Now, many years ago, some of you will wince when I tell this story, I had three guitars stolen in a break-in of our home. Two of them I never saw again, but one of them appeared in a moneylender shop just not far from where we lived. And to cut a long story short, I had to buy it back. I had to pay the redemption price. I had to ransom my guitar, basically paying the $50 that the man in the shop had given to the person who brought it in. But there was no way of having that guitar, saving that guitar, apart from paying that price. And friends, that's what Jesus has done for us. He has paid the redemption price, ransomed us from sin and death. Now, how did he do that? When did he do that? Where did he do that? Well, 
Verse 25 points us to the answer, doesn't it? God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Okay, so here's the third big idea, atonement. It's really now moved out of the slave market into the temple arena. The temple is where atonement was made in the time of the Bible. It's where sacrifice was offered, where blood was shed, so that sins could be forgiven, so that people could be at one with God. That's what the word atonement, in fact, means, at one right? bringing back two parties together into friendship and fellowship. And of course, this is what happened on that first Good Friday. As Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, he made atonement for sins. It was a sacrifice of atonement that he offered. Okay, so here we're taken right into the very heart of the Christian gospel. Because as Jesus offered himself, right, his sinless self, he set us free from the sins that would otherwise take us to hell. As he shed his innocent blood, he turned away the wrath of God that is rightly upon us for our sins. He made atonement, right, bearing that which we deserve so that we might receive that which we don't deserve. There's a story told of a um, little country town that was uh, caught in the wake of a, a massive forest fire, perhaps a little like the ones that have been racing through California in recent days. And uh, the townsfolk, uh, as they realized what was happening, uh, discovered to their horror that all the roads sort of out of town were engulfed in flames and there was actually no way to escape. And so what they did in a moment of quick thinking was to head down to the center of their town where there was a playing field and they basically set fire to everything they could. Burned the grass, burned the shrubs, burned the tree, burned everything. And as soon as the sort of earth cooled, they gathered together in the middle of that space. And as the fires came through and wiped out everything in the town, they got to that place and they went no further. Right? Because they were standing where the fires had already burned. Now, I tell that to you as a kind of parable because the fact of the matter is as you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ and all that he did for us as he died for us on the cross, guess what? We are standing where the fires of God's wrath have already burned and will not burn a second time. That's, that's why Paul talks here about the need for faith in his blood. Trusting in his sacrifice. Because you see, it's as we believe that we receive, as we believe in the reality of his sacrifice, we receive the benefits of his sacrifice. Faith alone. John Calvin said, faith is like an empty hand that receives the generous gift of a gracious God. And this is the way, you see, that the just God has been able to justly justify the unjust. Sorry, that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? The just God has been able to justly justify the unjust. Right? 
without sidestepping his law, without sort of violating his holiness. Because sin has been paid for. The penalty has been met. And so the cross of Christ, in fact, demonstrates not just the mercy of God, but also the justice of God. This is what verses 25 and 26 go on to say. Look partway through verse 25 there. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There's the miracle. How can God be just and justify sinners? Well, in this way, through the death of his own son. And if you've ever wondered what happened to the sins of all those Old Testament saints, that we, some of which we heard about in our reading from Hebrews 11, Right? Moses and Abraham and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and on and on. All the believing Israelites. What happened to their sins? Well, God in his forbearance had left them unpunished until the death of Christ. That's where their sins were paid for. Just as our sins were there paid for. They looked forward to that event. We looked back it's a wonderful line I don't know if we'll say it this morning in the communion service but one of the great changes that Thomas Cranmer brought in in the English Reformation when he rewrote the Lord's Supper service and he wrote the words that Christ made there on the cross by his one oblation of himself once offered a full perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world he made it there Done. Finished. And so from that moment on, there was a real, historical, moral, just and effectual basis for God to forgive the sins of the unworthy, for God to justly justify sinners. And that's what he's done for you, for me, justified freely by his grace. Now, all that leads to a very important question which comes up in verse 27. It's worth us just uh, focusing on it. The question is this, where then is boasting? In other words, what have we got to be proud of? (laughs) And Paul's answer, nothing. Right? It's excluded. On what principle, he says? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Here's where Luther actually in his uh, German translation of the Bible, which again had been Latin for centuries up until his time, he put into German for the German people. He inserted the word alone there in verse 28. A man is justified by faith alone apart from observing the law, because he wanted to make explicit that which is clearly implicit here, that it's faith only, not anything we do. Now, I don't know if you've ever sort of realized this, but 
this is pretty confronting, isn't it? It, it? It's an assault on our pride because it's really saying to us, you bring nothing to the table. Your contribution is zero. It's an affront to our pride. You know, the old saying is right, that the Christian gospel is good news for bad people, but bad news for good people. <laughs> well, at least those who think they're good people. Because the truth, of course, is that we're not. We're not okay, and there's nothing we can do to fix it. But the good news is that what we can't do, God has done, see? And that's why boasting is excluded He's done it all. We had nothing. And so, you know, it's good to take a leaf out, out of the sort of AA playbook, I think, at this point, and fess up, you know. Uh, my name's Rob Smith. I'm a sinaholic. Right? Saved by grace. Right? A slave to sin, addicted to disobedience, but met by the living God. And the grace of his son. That's why Christ is our only hope. And that's why we must, says Paul, maintain <laughs> that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. You know the old hymn, don't you? Nothing in my hand I bring. No? Nothing. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless. Look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. And wash us, he does. Completely. Thoroughly. By grace, through faith, in Christ, I am justified. I remember hearing a Sunday school teacher explain to her children what this means. She said, if I am justified, I am just as if I'd never sinned. Spot on. Justified, freely, by grace, through faith, in Christ. doesn't get simpler than that, does it? And it really is for everyone. That's the point of the question in verse 29. He says, is God the God of Jews only? Is this only for the chosen people? No. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. See, here's the thing. I know it's very easy for us to compare ourselves to each other, isn't it? You know, to rank ourselves as being better or worse than others. We don't have to. In fact, it's a waste of time. Because Mother Teresa needs Christ just as much as Adolf Hitler. Right? Billy Graham just as much as Osama bin Laden. At the end of the day, we're all in the same boat, all in the same basket, all have the same problem. But the one God has provided the one and the same solution for all. Justification by faith 
in Christ. Faith alone. It's all that's needed. So there's one little question left hanging, at least in Paul's mind, perhaps in yours too. It's there in verse 31. He says, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Right? Do we just now just forget about the law, not worry about the law, and in fact dispense with it, despise it even? What's he say? No, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Right? The law not only reveals to us God's will, what we ought to do, but of course, as we've seen, it shows us our need. And in so doing, it points to the solution. It doesn't itself provide it, but it points to it. Salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. There's a wonderful Australian proverb. I don't know that there are many Australian proverbs. So perhaps it's not a big thing to be the wonderful Australian proverb, but this one is wonderful. It says, if you see a tortoise sitting on top of a fence post, you can be sure it didn't get there by itself. Friends, the message of Romans 3 is that if you see a sinful human being like me, like you, justified before God, well, you can be sure we didn't get there by ourselves. In fact, it has nothing to do with us, everything to do with him. It's the free gift of a gracious God given to us by faith alone in Christ alone. Does that deserve an amen? Amen indeed. We're going we're to sing in response now and as we prepare for uh, the Lord's Supper. So please stand as the band makes their way up.